All right, let's go to First John, chapter two. First John, hit Romans. No, hit Revelation. Go left a couple pages, and you'll find First John. Found it. Are we there? First John 2? Verses 12 through 17 this evening. And we read. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And Father, that is our desire, is that we be those who abide forever. We want to be with you. And God, in this study of assurance, I pray that there would be assured salvation for many saints, that there would be confidence, and there would no longer be wavering and doubting but that we will become emboldened in our knowledge and security of who we are in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So this is our fourth message in a series called Assurance. We're going through 1 John, and that's what John's point of the book is. He's not trying to correct, really, he's not really trying to correct anything that's wrong. He sees that there's Christians in the church losing security in their salvation. They're not sure anymore what exactly they believe because there are people going around teaching things that are really weird, contrary to what both Jesus and John had been teaching. So it's 60 years after Jesus has gone to heaven, so some time has passed. John's the last apostle, the one of the 12 that followed Jesus. He's the last living guy, and he sees a lot of problems. So he's trying to write to saints, not to the problem. He's writing to the people that are losing their confidence and he's trying to reassure them that the word they first heard from Jesus and from John himself is the true word. So if it's true, it's not true. Leave it alone. If it's new, it's not true. Leave it alone. And if it's true, it's true. So pursue that. Um, <laughs> so the reason assurance is important is because the most dangerous thing you can do as a Christian is assume that you're a Christian. Just like when I jump out of an airplane, uh, you guys know that when you do skydiving, the parachute absolutely has to be packed properly, or it will not open properly, and it will not bring you down to the ground properly. So, the most dangerous thing you can do in skydiving is assume your chute is packed correctly, and jump out and say, woohoo, I'm good, and then you find out it's not. Well, it when it comes to salvation, we're talking about things that are so much more important than skydiving. We need to know, not assume, but have assurance that we are definitely in the hands of eternal life. That our souls are committed to Jesus Christ. And that we have that assurance of eternal life. That's what we want to know beyond all shadow of a doubt. So, what we've seen thus far, now we're in our fourth message. So, what we've seen thus far is that assurance comes from loving Jesus. 
if you love Jesus, then you have assurance of your eternal life. But what does it mean to love Jesus? Because that's a very... You, you take a poll in America, what does it say, like 80% of Americans love Jesus. And I take that to mean that they have high admiration for his person. They respect his, his teachings. They revere him as some better-than-them type of person. But to love Jesus, in John's definition, is way beyond that, to the point that it, it starts to infiltrate your entire life. And we've seen two ways so far. To love Jesus means, first of all, that you will walk in the light, not the darkness. Walking in the light means you're walking in open and honest truth with God. So that when you sin and you go into the darkness... You're not going to love that place. You want out as soon as possible. So you, rather than wanting to deceive God and where you are with Him in the darkness, you want to become open and honest with Him so you confess your sin, which brings you back to the light. That's 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's walking in the light. We don't love sin. We are hurt when we sin. We feel worse. Uh, when I mess up with my parents, you know, you feel bad, it sucks and stuff. But ultimately, it doesn't feel the same as when I sin against Jesus. I feel really bad. And that's a good sign. That's a sign that you have eternal life. Because you want to be in the light. Even when you sin, you want to just say, God, I'm sorry, come heal me for this. Just total openness. So secondly, we saw, last week particularly, that you have assurance of eternal life if, you keep the commandments of Jesus, namely the commandment to love each other. And we looked at what that looks like. So if I am operating in love towards every single Christian, I have assurance of eternal life. Now, you could take this and say, however, if I love every Christian except for Jesse in the back, and I'm having trouble forgiving Jesse because of something that he said to me, and you guys all encourage me, Brandon, you really ought to love Jesse. He's, he's God's son, just like you are. We're, we're a family. We're a body in Christ. You ought to forgive him. And I refuse. You guys have every right in the world to assume that I do not have eternal life. Because assurance loves the body of Christ. Christians cannot fail to love each other. They cannot hold hatred and grudges against one another. We might on accident, but when it's shown up, we have the ability to humble ourselves and to love each other. And if we don't do that, I'm not going to just necessarily pass the judgment immediately and say you're not a Christian, although I think it's very telling, but you definitely don't have assurance. You're only assuming at that point. So, walking in the light, keeping the commandments of Jesus to love each other, and tonight, the third way to love Jesus and thus have assurance is to not love the world. Let me put this more severely. You know you love Jesus if you hate the world. <laughs> That's a severe comment, if we hate the world. Because we live in the world. So what does it mean to hate the world? Well, let's clarify this, alright? It does not mean that you hate the planet. When God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 31, what did he say? He said... Behold, it is good. 
God was pleased with the work He made. This planet, this universe, is to Him pleasing. It was a good work. So for John to be saying, do not love the planet or the things in the planet, would be totally against Scripture. We're to love this earth. We're to, in a sense, take care of it. I'm not going to say that we should all go out and get a Prius and get all super, like, green and hyped up and tree-hugging people. Um, there's, you know, there's a fine line between taking care of the world and still living a normal life. Um, but we shouldn't be thrashers of the world because Revelation 11.18, it says that one of the reasons God's wrath in the end times, God's wrath is going to be poured out, it says He's going to pour it out upon the destroyers of the earth. He's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. So God definitely cares for His planet. So we're not to hate the planet. Second thing John does not mean is the people of the world. He's not saying, do not love the people or the things of the people in the world. The uh, people and world are often used together in Scripture, but we see it in a positive sense. For example, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What's world there? The people. He didn't die for the planet. He died for the people. God so loved the people that he gave his only begotten son. What about 1 John 2, 2, which we read way back a couple weeks ago? He says, Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the people. He's a propitiation for the sins of the people of the world. So, um, clearly, last week we saw that we're supposed to love people. Therefore, John's not telling us to hate the people or the planet. What John is telling us to hate is the program of the world. The program is Satan's little system. For example, when we talk about the world of NASCAR, too bad Stephen's not here for this. The world of NASCAR, we're not talking about a planet. (laughs) We're talking about a system, a program in which NASCAR operates. There's a certain protocol. There's a certain priority. There's certain people. That's what the world of NASCAR entails. The priority, we're going to be the first to race our car on the same track 5,000 times and be done first. That's the priority. The people are rednecks. (laughs) and the protocol is repetition left turn after left turn with a couple stops for gas and tires and tires and I'm tired of that too so that's the world of NASCAR it's a program there's certain rules certain people certain structures and that is what John tells us to hate is the program of the world in which the Bible says Satan is the prince of the world. He's presently the one running the program of this world. And that's what we're to despise. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, we read, we read about Satan's world system. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Note this, following the course of this world. And he specifies what that means. Following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Did you catch that? You were once following the course of this world. 
There's a course in this world. Just like NASCAR has a course. It's usually all left turns, but it's a course. Of course. And this, <laughs> this world has a course in which Satan has set up. It's his little rat race. And he's got all the world at his fingertips, and he's making all the little worldlings, which, which Ephesians says you once were part of, in this little race, going left, 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 going in circles, going nowhere, in Satan's system. It's a track of three left turns. Um, some of the NASCAR tracks is a triangular type. I think Indianapolis is one, maybe? Am I wrong? Yeah, right? No? I don't know. You see, that's why Stephen needs to be here. But it's a triangular track with three left turns. What are these three left turns in Satan's course? It's in verse 16. It says, The desires of the flesh. Second, the desires of the eyes. And third, pride and possessions. Those are the three left turns in this course that Satan has. Now, See, we as Christians are desiring to walk a straight line for Christ. And we're going after Him. We're following Him. But what Satan wants to do is throw us off of that desire by throwing at you the pride of possession. And so you see that. And if you, if you bite, you turn. And right there, you're in Satan's track. You're going straight for Christ, but he takes you on that left turn. And you're on his little course. And then he throws you the lust of the flesh. And you take another left turn. And then the lust of the eyes. And another left turn. And hence, before you know it, you're stuck in the system. Running left turn after left turn, following the desires of this world. And what we need to do is not take those turns, but keep going straight. That's why John says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because you're turning away. So Satan throws these left turns at us to try to steer us away from our goal, which is Jesus. As we go, just yank them off course. Now, this passage, I think especially, applies to us. More so than many others. Because John here, in verse 12 to 14, tells us it applies to us. You might have noticed when we read, in verses 12 through 14, he's addressing three types of people. He says, little children, young men, and fathers. Little children addresses the entire church. That's, that's his affectionate term for Christians. He's like 90 years old at this point, about to kick the bucket, and everyone else in him is a little child. So, John, hey, my little children. Now, within that group, little children, he's addressing two groups. Fathers, the old mature ones, and young men, the younger ones. Who would that be? Life. And us. We're the young men and, of course, women, because in the Greek the term addresses both. But due to cultural reasons, they always says men. So here we are. John says, I am writing to you, young men and women. Why? Because the world system seems to have an especially strong hold on youth. So we're, of course, concerned with the fact that he's addressing young men. He cares about every Christian at all ages, but today, we are really concerned about us. And, and there is, definitely, um, our culture says, just, just be like the world, because going counterculture to the world is actually going to hinder your experiences as a young person. One life to live, and you're, just go after all the pleasure that you can, and 
to think of a Christian philosophy that says don't go according to that course is to say, according to the world, is to say you're depriving them of desires and pleasures. You're hindering their experience. They need to experience things before they become older. Let them learn. So this is not a popular message in the world. Of course, to say not to love the world. So John sees the need to address young men, young women, that we too, especially us, are not to love the world or the things in the world. One of the old Scottish, I think, maybe Irish, I can't remember now, sometimes they blend together. I think it was Scottish, maybe it's Irish. I'm going back and forth now. Um, he was an old preacher back in the day, and the country, Scotland, Ireland, decided that you're no longer allowed to preach the gospel freely like you want. The government's going to control that. Well, one preacher named Samuel Rutherford decided that he's not going to follow their rules. He's going to preach the gospel as he knows the truth is. So he did. And of course, they go after him. They imprison him. So Samuel Rutherford is in prison for many years. And we have a collection of his letters that he would correspond with people in his church while he was in prison. And I want to quote a couple times from his letters because he was especially concerned at certain times with the youth in his church. So he wrote about youth and to youth at times. And he says this about youth in one of his letters. He says, Youth ordinarily is a ready servant for Satan to run errands. It is a nest for lust, cursing, drunkenness, blaspheming of God, lying, pride, and vanity. Satan has a friend at court in the heart of youth. And there, in the heart of youth, Pride, luxury, lust, revenge, forgetfulness of God are hired as his agents. Man, when I read that, I was like, that's totally true. That youth sits there as a ready servant for Satan. That the heart of youth youth is like the court of Satan. And he has all of his hired agents ready just to wreak havoc in your heart. Lust and revenge and spitefulness and pride and luxury and forgetfulness of God. All those things. Satan has found a fertile plain to sow his wicked seeds in the hearts of young people. And I, I consider myself still in this category, even though I feel like I'm aging, and I definitely am aging. I still consider myself in this. I feel the pull of the world all the time. It's by the grace of God that we stand firm and don't take the left turn to Satan's course and keep going on to Jesus. John agrees with this. That's why John says, young people, I'm writing to you. And he wants us to know, especially in verse 14, uh, the last part, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. To John, this is not a hopeless cause in our battle against the world. He says to them, look, you have overcome you can do this. It's not a hopeless cause. You don't have to follow all the sheep to the slaughter like all of everyone else is. Just because people go to raise doesn't mean you have to go. Just because everybody else is at the party doesn't mean you have to follow. It's not a hopeless cause. You have overcome. There's hope here. And John Ruth- Samuel Rutherford would say the exact same thing John wants to say. I quote from him one last time. He says, I cannot but upon the opportunity of a preacher exhort you, he's writing to a young man, exhort you, to resign the love of your youth to Christ. And in this day, while your sun is high and your youth serves you, to seek the Lord in his face. For there is nothing out of heaven so necessary for you as Christ. And you cannot be ignorant, but your days will end 
and the night of death shall call you from the pleasures of this life. So while you have the strength and vigor of a youth, put all of that into seeking Christ. I can't tell you guys how many times, especially the old people here, come up to me and say, I'm so young and serving Christ already. Oh, what I'd give to have your life. You hear that? Those are people at the end of their life realizing, I had the world as a youth, and looking back, I wish that I was Brandon in my youth. So, the message that comes from the lecture halls of Satan's school of deceitful doctrine is not true. That the world is necessary for you to experience now. Samuel Rutherford, the Apostle John, Brandon McCulloch, and the old geezers down there would all share the same advice. I say that affectionately. I really do. They all share the same advice as give your strength to Christ while you have it. Let the youth be for Christ. So, why then should we not love the world? Because this is, like we've been saying, this totally counterculture. You guys know a lot of Christians that love the world and are definitely in the course. And, you know, they call out grace justified. This is I've never sinned and grace of God covered me always. By faith I'm saved, not by my works, right? So I'm good. According to John, they are assuming they're not necessarily assured. And so we're definitely going against the grain here by saying we're going to stand up and say we're not going to be those that love the world. We're taking John's advice in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's us. But why? Why should we take this dramatic change, this dramatic stance, especially when Satan's course appeals to my eyes and my flesh and my pride? It appeals to me. It's easy to do. Why go against that? Why reverse the racetrack and get out of it and go to Christ? Three reasons. Number one. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And that's severe. That basically means if you love the world, you do not love God. I get this from the last part of verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James puts it this way in James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God. You can insert there war against God. It's hatred against God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, he continues, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy against God. James says you can't be both. Loving the world and loving God. If you love the world, you cannot love God. And John says the love of the Father is not in you. So, you can't have both. You're choosing when you love the world. You're saying, I might respect Jesus, but according to the biblical definition of assurance in love, I don't love him in that way. John 3.19 The world is darkness, and the Father, we saw in actually First John 1, what, 5, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The world is darkness, John says, or Jesus says in John 3.19. The light, which is Jesus, has come into the world, and people love Darkness, which is the world, rather than the light, Jesus, because their works were evil. So, if I'm loving the world, I can't love God, because the world's dark and God is light. These are polar opposites. So, if I love the world, the love of God is not in me. And furthermore, Jesus said that the world hates him. So, what are we doing by siding with something that hates Jesus? 
That's from John 15:18. The world hates me. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Reason number two. Because. Why is the love of the Father not in me if I love the world? It's because the desires of the world do not desire God. So the desires of the world are taking you away from God. Look at verse 16. For, this is because, so look, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because for all that is in the world, these three turns, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Satan's course is designed to turn us away from Jesus. We're desiring him, we're going for him, but then another desire comes and it turns us away. You cannot be desiring God if you're desiring the world. Because the desire of the world is completely contrary to that. Let's go through these three left turns briefly. What are they? The desires of the flesh? You guys have heard this saying, right? If it feels good, do it. That is the desire of the flesh. It is a physical pleasure experienced by abusing God's given pleasures. It's a physical pleasure that you experience because you're abusing the God-given pleasures of life. Example, sex. God-given pleasure, commanded, husband and wife are to have it and are not to abstain from it. Especially a biblical command. However, we take that God-given pleasure and we abuse it by saying, it feels good, do it now. So, whenever, whoever, wherever, we go ahead and operate in the desires of the flesh. Whether it's visually, mentally, or physically, that is the desire of the flesh. It's totally steering us away from Jesus. Um, not, of course, just sexually. We can go down the list of other things, like um, medication. You can totally abuse drugs. They could be for your good, but they could also be completely abused. You can go down the list. Every single desire in life, Satan has an abuse for it to turn you away from Jesus. How about the desire of the eyes? That is the phrase, if it looks good, get it. So, <laughs> this is either a mental or visual pleasure experienced by coveting something that we do not have. Could be a guy or a girl. And this is very much the case. This is one of the big ways that the world grabs young men and women. I've gone down this left turn many times. I know you guys have too. With the desire of the eyes. And the way that the world just pulls us away from Jesus. Because, oh, we all want to have a girl or a guy. We all want to be married. We all want to experience that stuff. But we're not exactly, you know, we're good Christian people. We're not going to go, like, prostitute ourselves and stuff. So rather, let's mentally and visually experience it. Internet, magazines pornography, and of course, this, these days too is addressed to women too. Stats are showing that women are increasingly getting involved in pornography as well. Um, and of course, I can go down the list with like romance novels and stuff that go over into, but anyways. <laughs> there though, the desire of the eyes, trying to pull us away from Jesus. So mental or visual pleasure experienced by coveting something we don't have. There's an example of a guy in Joshua 7 named Achan who did this. He was told when they defeated Jericho, do not take anything from the city. Well, he saw a Babylonian garment and some gold and silver and said, I want it. He looked around. Joshua wasn't looking. No one else was looking. So he took it. He hid it under the tent. And 
when they went to their next battle, they were soundly routed by a weaker army. And Joshua was ripping his hair out, tearing his clothes off, throwing ashes on his head, crying to God, why did you let us get defeated? Why is everyone going to hate me as a leader now, God? Why did you lead me to this? And God said, Joshua, hold it just a minute. There's sin in your camp. And of course, they find out Achan did it. Achan confessed this. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak, gold and silver, I coveted them and took them. Desires of the eyes. And you don't even necessarily have to take something to still be operating the desire of the eyes. It's just simply seeing and wanting. So, then the pride in possession. That is, if it makes me look good, then either do it or get it. This is ostentatious pride. Or just, just, just flouting yourself to try to get attention or admiration from other people. And of course, at, uh, at a, the age of a young man or woman, generally this is done in school by doing stupid things that people admire you or um, you know, hanging out with the right people to get attention. You just imagine all the obnoxious things people do to try to be popular and try to get everyone's eyes on them. This is the way of the world. It's, it's pride in possessions in a sense for young people because we're not really big on possessions as much. But when you get older, possessions is everything. You're defined by what you drive. You're defined by what you do. Oh, it's so awful when you go to these secular events and especially like family events and they're like, so, you know, I mean, what do you do for a living? And it's like, you know, I'm a person, okay? Like, treat me like a person. But the minute I say, I'm a pastor, it's like you say the forbidden word that ex- immediately excommunicates you from all social events for that evening. It's like, oh, you don't have the, you're not a real person. Like, what kind of a job is that? Like, you're one of those priests, aren't you? You are the caller, huh? No, 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 no. You smell the incense. You want me to kiss your hand? And like, oh, gosh, like, you're no longer human. <laughs> you're just fine. But, you know, if you walk in, I'll swat. like, I'm an attorney. Oh, my gosh. People grovel at your feet. Or gravel, as lying things like, no, that's gravel! Or how's it? I don't remember. Um, so, there we have it. Um, Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, yes, the world appeals to a Christian through these three left turns. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possession. And once the world takes over in one of these areas, a Christian will soon realize it. Because, he will lose his enjoyment of the Father's will, the Bible will become boring, and prayer a difficult choice. Even Christian fellowship may seem empty and disappointing. It is not that there is something wrong with others or these things like the Bible and the Father's will, but however, the problem is the Christian's worldly heart. That is the problem. When we get on Satan's course by taking any of these left turns, we're stuck there, and the things of the Spirit become dull and dead. Third reason not to love the world. First, if we love the world, though the Father's not in us, this is because, secondly, the world desires things that don't desire God. And then third, this is because, this is the conclusion. Therefore, the desires of the world are passing away, and all those who do them are as well. Verse 17. And the world is passing away along with the desires, but... Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world's passing away, but we abide forever who does the will of God. The implication is those that do the things of the world are passing away with the world. And on the contrary, we abide forever. So, this is a very good reason. Because we want to abide forever. That's called eternal life. And those who do the things of the world do not possess eternal life, John says. On the contrary, the pleasures of God, not the pleasures of the world, are eternal. 
Psalm 16.11 says that at your right hand are pleasures forever. Eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. In his book Heaven, Randy Alcorn says this. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. So, our desire for the world is actually a misguided desire for Jesus. It's the point. And when we go after the pleasures of the world and take any of these left turns, we're actually embracing a mere shadow of what we really want. But Jesus offers this real and substantial. So, overcoming our love for the world, two ways I want to propose. The first is by doing the will of God. By doing the will of God, we'll overcome our love for the world. End of verse 17 says that. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is because that word but, whoever does the will of God abides forever, that means that the desires of the world are contrary to the will of God. So if you want to get over your love for the world, you have to do the opposite of its will. In other words, if it's telling you to turn left with the lust of the eyes, you turn right. You do the opposite. Because that's the will of the Father is the opposite of the will of the world. That's why John says, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. There's a total contrast. So we learn the will of the Father and we do that. So when the world says left, you say right. And if that means crashing into the wall of the course, so be it. You're out of the race. And that's the point. It might hurt to say no, but it works. So we make a right. A direct opposite turn. And then, secondly, by soaking in the word of God. Look at verse 14. Second half again, where he says, young men. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the what? The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, take those two words, and, and insert them like this. Okay, I'm going to reread it, and, and replace those words, and, to get the sense of what he's saying. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, because, so you're strong, because the word of God abides in you, therefore you have overcome the evil one. You're strong because the word of God abides in you, therefore, because the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. It's that simple. <laughs> simple. That by soaking in the word of God, we begin to learn and know how to do the will of God, thus reversing our course in the world and going and pursuing after Jesus. The more we read the Word, the more we fall in love with Jesus. The only way not to love the world is to love the Word. So do the will of God by soaking in the Word of God. They go hand in hand. His will is revealed in His Word. And as we do so, we find supernatural strength. Oh, Brandon, you're a pastor. You're special. No, no, no. I chose to not love the world when I was in high school before I ever even had a dream or thought or desire to be a pastor. It's not like I decided oh, i got to be a good guy because I'm going to be a pastor one day. It didn't happen that way. I decided because Jesus has more to offer me that I'm going to go His way instead of the course of the world. And how did I do that? It was the day I started to read the Bible daily. My life dramatically changed. Gradually, but it did. And I saw that the desires of the world 
we're left turned going in the same circle over and over and I was able to say I'm just going to go after Jesus sure I made a bad turn every now and then but I did not stay in that track and man just the, the assurance that you have when you do that of eternal life is the result of joy I can jump out of an airplane with joy if I know there's a parachute if I'm assuming I'm coming out pretty nervously so if we hate the world we know that the love of Jesus is in us and we have eternal life so Father it's our prayer that you save us from the desires of the world and Lord I know because my heart is excruciatingly wicked and I assume theirs is too but Father we need an extra measure of your grace to understand the wickedness of our hearts and to withhold us from making those turns in the world. God, protect us from desires of the flesh, from desires of the eyes, from pride and possessions, and let us just exclamatically proclaim that we are yours. And all we have is Jesus, but that is not all. That is everything that we need. So, pull us out of the course and let us go straight forward for Jesus all the days of our life. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.